Welcome to the CCM Deep Dive Podcast as we go song by song and story by story through some of Christian music's most influential albums with the artists who created them. It's time to grab your coffee and settle in. Let's go. It's been a really wonderful gift back. And it's, in fact, it's been one of the, it's a, a song for me that's been redemptive to kind of reclaiming my Christian catalog when I go out and play live. One, two, three, one, two. Welcome as we continue through Jennifer Knapp's 1998 major label debut album, Kansas. Which, speaking of, why Kansas for an album title? Yeah, I didn't choose it. It was uh, Toby McKeon named it. Uh, that I don't say that kind of sideways. Toby McKeon, of course, is Toby Mac, the former DC Talk member turned solo artist who founded Goatee Records back in 1994. So to give a little timeline, Jennifer released her first independent album, Circle Back that same year, in 1994, then in 1996 released the follow-up, Wishing Well. A year later, Wishing Well landed at the offices of Goatee Records, which then took the best songs Jennifer had up to that point, added a few new songs, and packaged it all together for Kansas. I am notoriously poor at naming any record because here on out when like from Kansas on out. So every other record you've ever seen of mine has a title cut for a name because I don't ever know what to call these things. So I didn't know what to call Kansas. I, I, I think I fought probably and resisted at the time being, you know, having any of the titles on it. Uh, any of the title, any of the songs on the album just didn't kind of feel like they ma- they matched on it. So I think, kind of in a joke one day, I think, and I don't have a lot of interactions with Toby Mac, but, you know, Toby Mac was definitely around for a lot of the developmental conversations about this record. And I think we we also didn't kind of like really personally kind of get to know each other too well. And I think he just saw me as this weird chick from a place that he didn't understand in Kansas. He's like, all right, we'll just call it Kansas. Cause it's kind of, I, I think it says a lot about the way that he saw me actually is just, in some good ways and some bad ways. I think he kind of saw me as, I think maybe, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit simple, a little bit like hick. <laughs> like, like I, I definitely was like, I still had, I only had like one eyebrow when I got to Na- Nashville and didn't really know what sushi was and hadn't had a lot of real world experience. And, and, you know, I didn't have any kind of metropolitan knowledge, so to speak. So I think he kind of saw me as a hayseed a little bit, but uh, I, I'm putting words into, into his mouth. I never felt disrespected by him, but I, I think I was, it, it reflects some of the weirdness that I represented to him that he could only maybe qualify and go, well, she's from Kansas. Let's just call it Kansas. And so that it kind of stuck and has no relationship to everything else. So it's kind of wild that it still stands out there to this day. 
While Toby McKeon named the album and had a hand in the development, it was actually another McKeon responsible for Jennifer's overall look and style. Anytime I've been photographed, somebody else has picked my clothes. I mean, you do not want me. I do not want me picking my forever eternity wardrobe for whenever I get photographed. I mean, fashion is not one of my, you know, I'm a jeans and a t-shirt kind of gal. Um, and I think that I think kudos to particularly in the Kansas, like just the whirlwind that it felt like, you know, coming in all of a sudden having to do a photo shoot. I mean, I cannot tell you for a Tom for a tomboy how anomalous that feels like it's just was just a strange experience to want to even sit down and, and be photographed. Um, but I think uh, a shout out to Carrie Stewart, who is Toby Mac's brother and was the wife of the producer, actually. It was kind of this tight knit family. And and Carrie was just really kind. And she was definitely a fashionista. And I and I think she really appreciated that I wasn't going to be comfortable in dresses and really understood kind of like the jeans and T-shirt side of that. But how you can make that, you know, cool and kind of transmit you know, kind of rock and roll that up to some degree where I still felt comfortable. So, I mean, I, I think the Kansas album cover, strangely enough, is just, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's sort of like a, an LL Bean kind of thermal shirt. It was just a white shirt that I was wearing with jeans. And what made it provocative was just getting a haircut and putting the guitar strap, you know, just wearing my guitar backwards on the on the the photo shoot. So it was it was amazing to be. And at the time we did it, it was just me and Carrie standing out there in a field. We were just driving around and doing some test shoots um, for locations. We weren't actually doing a formal shoot. She just popped out of the car and said, oh, I like the background here. Grab your guitar and we'll take a couple of candid shots. I mean, there was probably only maybe... 20, not even 20 minutes worth of photos from that particular shot. We just kind of popped out to catch the light. And, um, you know, and it's really, I, I want to say that was one of even before I had even had a formal shoot. So I think that's, it's interesting when I see that picture, I look at that and I'm going, this is a, this is a greenhorn. This is a rookie. I'm just standing there in the, in the middle of a field with a guitar going, what's next? <laughs> And it's so plain that, I, I don't know, I really loved it, but it was provocative for sure for a lot of people. In the 25 years since the album came out, the Nashville metro area, which includes the town of Franklin to the south, has doubled in size to just over 2 million residents. As Joni Mitchell once sang, they've paved paradise and put up a parking lot. But back then, it was still a sprawling countryside with rolling tree-lined hills. Made a great backdrop for the album photo shoot. If you've ever been to Williamson County in the Franklin area along uh, I-65 around 96 and all that built up area in there, it is a metropolitan area compared to what it was. It used to be just uh, fields and ranches. And so there and a lot of nothing in between, you know, Nashville along Mac Hatcher all the way down to Franklin, just absolutely nothing. And so we had pulled it was one of the ranches along there. We were actually trespassing, I think. Um, If somebody I can't believe we'd. ever got a phone call going, hey, uh, that's our ranch. You know, we didn't have permission to shoot there at all. But yeah, just some field basically on a Sunday drive. Total side note here. Sunday Drive was the actual name of a Christian rock pop band in the late 1990s that had moderate success with the single God is Believable, just in case anyone thinks that would make a great name for a band. It does, and it's already been done. Speaking of great band names, let's get back to Kansas. Yeah, I I think for Martyrs and Thieves... The seventh song on the album, sandwiched between the upbeat guitar-driven songs His Grace is Sufficient and Romans, Martyrs and Thieves is a beautiful little prayer that, by any music industry matrix, should not have been on the album. 
speaking of kind of the latitudes that I would get from Goatee Records, this was a song that that I think has over the test of time has been kind of the the uh, keystone song to this record. It is the one song beyond maybe arguably beyond Do Me, but it rivals Undo Me in its passion, I think, for sure. Uh, it's a song that people associate with hands down uh, through the longevity of this record. They always mention Martyrs and Thieves. The fun thing about that is it almost didn't make the record. It's There are a variety of reasons why that is. It's in 6-8. It's over six minutes long. It's uh, not, you know, it's so long and it spends takes up so much of the real estate of the record and yet it doesn't it's not really jesusy it's it's certainly evocative of a prayer but it's not in any way that anything that was ever going to get on a radio station it was not anything that was ever going to get free license to play on a live uh show because it does take so much time solo acoustic and the other part was it was a six eight feel and there was a lot of residents production wise like how much six eight can we have on this record um and it's just, yeah, long and wordy and poetic. And uh, frankly, a lot of the dudes around me just kind of saw it as a poetic chick song and didn't really kind of listen to it and get into it. Um, that being said, I think it was, it was kind of the part of where we we realized this is a moment that we had to craft. Um, if we were going to put it on the record, we had to craft the environment that allowed people to meditate with the song and to kind of own this in that space and not try and oversell it, but just to create a, a, a soundscape that allowed people to kind of to take it on board as the prayer that it was always meant to be. There's always been a bit of tension between the art of making music and the business of making music. With this song, with the six and a half minutes, there are all kinds of conversations around it. You know, if we're going to put it on the record, we have to pare it down to like three and a half minutes. And part of it was a publishing thing. Like anytime you have a song over three and a half minutes, you start having to pay double publishing. And that was one of the issues, which was so funny. They basically didn't want to, you know, pay me to have anything more than a 10 song record. Um, but so they, you know, we'd had conversations to try and pare it down to three and a half minutes. And I was like, well, if you lose this first, then you're missing the, the thing. And it's basically a double chorus in the song. So they're like, well, let's get rid of one of the chorus. You know, let's get let's just lop out one of the sections. I'm like, you don't understand the yeah, I know there are two choruses. Let's fine. Call it a pre-chorus and a chorus, but they're, they're interrelational to each other. If you take out one, you miss the whole point. And then, like, you know, let's let's kill how many times you say, can you hear me in the bridge? And I'm like, but you don't understand when I perform it and you take that out, you it it takes that last you have to drive that repeat so many times because it's exhausting to hear it so many times. And you don't get the effect of it if you just if you make it just one time. Like, if I just say, can you hear me? Like, that's not pleading. But if I say it two, three, and four, you know, two, three times, you know, that's, it's, it's the annoyance with it that makes it finally audible <laughs> and the desperation that you sense. And it's like, so it's kind of, we made these arguments. We had them many, many times. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was, I think it was a capitulation just to get the thing tracked and that I wasn't going to budge on it. And I think part of it for me was the naivety of it, the arrogance that I had and, and the possessiveness I have about the lyrics. And I, I don't know, it turned out to be a good decision. I, I'll stand by it. Um, and it's a song, to, you know, that I really, I don't tend to put on my set list, but even to this day, when I don't put it on the set list, there's almost always a mutiny if I don't play it. And I think over the test of time, I, 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 
I, it's been a really wonderful gift back. And it's, in fact, it's been one of the, it's a, a song for me that's been redemptive to kind of reclaiming my Christian catalog when I go out and play live because so many people have told me like this song was for them. Like it was their song, their prayer, their meditation. And it was one of the, it took maybe 20 years of the song being out there before I realized that there were people who were having that could share the experience that I initially had with this song. Like, cause for me, I wrote the song in a room. I never really intended anybody to hear it. I never ended, intended for anybody to hear these songs, but this one was personal. And it was, it was, it was a prayer that I said alone with my guitar in hand. I, you know, strangely, but it was a prayer I said alone for a long time and sang over and over again before I ever let anyone hear it before I ever had the courage to put it on a record. And that that these years later that other people allowed that song to do the same thing for them it's it's weird that the song almost owns itself so you know it it got itself discovered and ca- came to me as a gift and my sharing it to other people it's just been a gift we've been handing around for a while so i'm glad i didn't mess with it too much thank you for joining us for another episode of the ccm deep dive with jennifer knapp Join us next week as we walk down the road in Romans.
doesn't say 